my first fire jump in 1977 was out of Vernal, Utah, and I jumped uh, in the Uintas, and it was a fairly strong breeze that day. I remember this very clearly because I hit the ground so hard, I thought, man, I'm not sure I'm tough enough to do this job. It pounded me in backwards, knocked the wind out of me, and I was just thinking to myself, if this is how every fire jump is, I don't know that I got the gumption in me to keep it up because yeah. uh, it took a lot of wind out of my sails. I had a lot of adrenaline flowing. First fire jump, rookie. Oh, really? I'm I'm ready to how exciting take the world on. Yeah, and uh, man, I <laughs> I put my hands on my knees and said, "Wow, yeah, that was something." These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. A hot drink can become cool in two primary ways, through conduction and convection. Conduction occurs when two objects touch each other. Imagine holding a piece of ice. Before long, your fingers are cold and the ice begins to melt. That's conduction. Convection occurs when a gas or liquid moves from being different temperatures. When you heat water over a stove, the warm water moves up and the cool water moves down. That's what you're seeing when water boils, and that's convection. A stainless vacuum bottle prevents conduction from occurring by creating a void between the walls of the bottle, thermos, or cup, and the outside air. It prevents convection by keeping all the liquid inside at the same temperature. That's how a Stanley product keeps your cold drink cold and your hot drink hot. And they've been doing it for 110 years. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Stanley 1913, and you can check out their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com. Top of the line health food. No, trust me. You know, when you hear the news, Greg tipped over, heart, massive heart attack, you know? Cheetos. We all know why. You know, <laughs> Cheez-Its and Cheetos for breakfast. Your dad says, oh my God, what's wrong with you? <laughs> do, you yeah. do you dabble at all in uh, any of the offshoot? Cheez-Its, or is it just a standard cheddar for you? Oh, no. There's the, the wrinkled ones, the big ones, the white cheddar, you know, the hot ones. Oh, no. it's, yeah, it's I figured you for a jalapeno Cheeto. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't get a lot of those because Teresa doesn't like them, so she kind of sneaks at them, too. So if she's doing the grocery shopping, it's the straight Cheez-It, white cheddar Cheez-It, per yep. se. Okay. You know? Well, we're back here in, uh, in the Stone Stone House at Greg Jones, and uh, we've got Greg and Mr. Kenny Poole. How are you, sir? I'm doing really well. Where do you feel like your story starts? I started with the Malheur National Forest in 1973 as a fire guard, and uh, I was going to Treasure Valley Community College at the time. We were situated in a little spot called Keeney Camp, which is not too far from Long Creek, Oregon, which is 
a long ways from anywhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a as a fire guard at Keeney Camp, our job was to uh, converse with the public, inform them of fire dangers and hazards associated with campfires, etc. So if somebody was roasting marshmallows recklessly, <laughs> that, that's kind of that was your day to day. That was our day to day. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> when a lightning bust would come along typically uh six or eight or ten times ten different days during the course of the summer fires would start wildland forest fires and uh, we would go out and manually fight the fire and on one such fire i was on the ground and there were eight guys that came floating down under a parachute onto this fire. The fire was six or seven acres, heavy fuel, and uh, it was going to be a struggle with the four guys that we had on the fire to be able to make progress on that fire, contain it, and... These eight smoke jumpers landed, got their gear, and absolutely kicked ass on the fire. Chainsaw, Pulaski shovels, dirt, wood was flying. I mean, they absolutely went to town to create a fuel break around the fire. And uh, I was absolutely awestruck by the job that they were doing and how much fun they were having and uh, just how much work was getting done. I was 18 at the time, and uh, those guys were, without a doubt, the best at fighting wildland fire, and I wanted to be one of them. And they had some restrictions on, uh, well, the smoke jumper program. Uh, you got to have so much firefighting experience. They prefer to have the uh, training program. They don't. They prefer you don't have any parachuting experience because they like to train you the way they want to train you. And, but firefighting was a prerequisite. And I needed a couple of additional years. So I spent some time on the Hell Attack crew in John Day. And uh, I was going to school at Oregon State at that time. And um, applied each year to the Smoke Jumper program. And uh, finally, in the uh, spring of 1977, I got the call saying that uh, my number came up. I had the appropriate amount of uh, pluses in the plus column. And uh, so I got in and uh, started started as a rookie in 1977. Um, extremely rigorous training. Their philosophy is you're going to get banged around a lot. And if you are strong, your muscles are strong, That'll take up 
a lot of the shock from making mistakes and uh, you're going to make a few mistakes as you're doing something that you haven't ever done before. So that uh, pretty much got me started and uh, bailing out of a perfectly good airplane is quite an experience. Uh, and then the adventures of landing in the forest where there are rocks, logs, stumps, Lots of trees, snags. Um, you've got. Uh, you mean it's not always just like a, a flat meadow with calm winds? <laughs> you know, uh, I think I can maybe count the flat meadow with calm winds jumps that I had on one hand. Yeah. <laughs> and I. Uh, do you remember how many jumps you have? I do not remember how many jumps I had. Uh, I've got. Uh, 117 fire jumps. Okay. Um, How many years did you end up jumping for? Seven. Seven years. Yeah. Okay. Um, I ended up with 132 repels over five years of repelling, I think. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that we did as repellers is at 50 and 100, you owed a keg to the crew. Um, so in your little rappel logbook, uh, you'd kind of start getting a little quiet when so you were in the forties. <laughs> you didn't it, want to advertise. That yeah. Stuff. You didn't want everybody knowing how many, how many rappels you had, but was there any kind of tradition like that for the jumpers? We always had a, uh, termination ball at the end of every fire season. And, um, there was, um, milestone, jumps were uh, penalized mm -hmm. significantly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and milestones were 50 and 100 150 every sure. 50 jump uh yeah uh, and so um yeah but there was a lot a lot of good good you know camaraderie uh what kind of aircraft were you in Started out in 1977 with a uh, DC-3, which if uh, I'm not mistaken, they were called C-47s in uh, World War II. A lot of the um, D-Day jumpers were jumping out of that same aircraft. Okay. And, uh, and then over the years, uh, probably the most versatile was a de Havilland Twin Otter. Mm -hmm. um, Short takeoff and landing capabilities and excellent, um, excellent weight carrying capabilities. They, uh, but I jumped out of uh, a Cessna 210, which was a two person jump plane, a uh, Casa, a uh, King Air, which is a T tail and a fairly high speed aircraft. Yeah, that's a little fast. I yeah. Think. yeah. Um, they would really, really try to feather it back <laughs> when we were when we were sitting in the doorway. Like but it try not to stall. Is yeah, that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. Because because you were zinging through the air and it felt like it was going to rip your pant legs off yeah. it, with your with your legs. It was a sit down exit. Um, the DC three was probably the most glorious because the doorway was big enough to stand up in and you could stand upright and bail out the door. Right. Um, have some concept of where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, uh, 
all of the other aircraft were sit-down exits. We manufactured steps so that you'd have one leg outside on a step and the other leg under underneath you, kind of in a kneeling position. And then with your arms, you know, thrusting out the doorway. And uh, it's a pretty, uh, pretty significant amount of tumble that goes on as you exit the aircraft and uh, keeping yourself in as upright of position as possible and uh, as that parachute deploys helps to minimize spins and, uh, and twists in the, uh, in the shroud lines. If, if you're not going out the door in a fashion where, you know, if you push off with one arm stronger than the other, um, you would just basically be spinning in the air and your canopy is not spinning. Right. And so you get twisted. Um, your canopy is above you in one position and you are down below spun up and you cannot use your steering toggles until you've untwisted. So, uh, it's highly important if you value being able to steer your parachute to where you want to go on the ground. And that's probably one of the utmost in safety is uh, drive your parachute to where you need to go rather than, um, rather than just being at the mercy of the breeze and uh, go where, wherever. And you mentioned that the DC-3 was a World War II aircraft um, smoke jumping really got its start right after World War II, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it actually was, uh, um, it began in 1939, which oh, was, did. yeah, before, before, um, before D-Day for sure. Uh, Interesting. and, uh, there was a lot of developing the program in, uh, those early years because, uh, it was just something new that, uh, was a experimental project right and uh they didn't have near the capabilities from a, a steerable parachute back mm -hmm. then as they do now um and uh so it uh it went through a infancy so to speak that lasted for a fair length of time because there was a lot of tinkering with uh the equipment to make it as safe as possible. And some tragedies along the way. A lot of luck. Um, a lot of luck that prevented more tragedies. But Man Gulch being, you know, an, an early tragedy for smoke jumpers. It's still very much talked about and, and discussed in firefighting circles today. Yes, indeed it is. Have you ever been there? I have. Um, it's solemn, isn't it? It's extremely solemn. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a tough sight to see, especially for somebody who's experienced similar, uh, you know, just wildland fire. And when wildland fire is raging, it's a pretty awe-inspiring sight. And to think that uh, there was no escape, uh, it's a pretty, pretty sombering experience. Well, for those who don't know, um, tell me a little bit about what, what Man Gulch is and what happened there. Well... I can't remember the year. I think it was like 49-ish. You know, yeah. no, nobody's going to hate us for, for getting that detail wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, there were, 
I believe, 12 smoke jumpers. Um, fire was burning low in a drainage mid-afternoon, very hot, 100 degrees, thunderstorms around, and uh, the uh, there was a, a thunderstorm that came over and, and whipped up significant winds, and the smoke jumper crew had been working, digging a indirect line on the hills above the fire, and uh, the fire was well it's referred to as blew up because the wind whipped it into a frenzy and uh and created basically a firestorm and it went racing up the hill and uh the firefighters and race, race is the word too yeah um and the firefighters recognized that but were on a steep slope and uh were just unable to get where there was a safe zone and uh and there were i i believe out of the dozen that were on that crew um i believe three of them survived and uh the other nine perished very tough story yeah so those guys were running running up the hill with a fire running up the hill behind them and man gulch is a tributary to the missouri river in montana and it I'm pretty confident that it was August of 1949, and it was a, a record high temperature day. The The crew boss was named Dodge, and he didn't know his men all that well. This is something that comes up in leadership discussions quite often. Uh, they didn't they didn't know him, um, and he didn't know them. He, he wasn't a very charismatic leader, um, and he hadn't developed the type of trust that, that might have helped. Um, so they didn't initially respond to him uh, when they all started running. And he ended up reaching down and lighting some grouse on fire and then uh, crawling into that burn and putting his face down in that black. And he was one of the ones that survived because the fire blew over the top of him, um, went around him. And then two guys that were in the best shape made it over the top of the ridge and survived um, with some lung damage and some burns. There's a tremendous book written about it called Young Men in Fire, one of three books written by Norman MacLean. And it's, uh, it's, it's very much worth reading if you have any interest in, in the history of firefighting or, or in leadership or, or just in, in really tremendous and, and beautiful and haunting literature because that's, that's definitely all of those things. Uh, I got to take a class of college freshmen there um, when I was helping teach that book. And, you know, you teach, teach a book in a classroom, and the, that's one thing. And it's like, all right, everybody load up. Here we go. Get in a jet boat. Go down there. This is where the fire started. And start hiking kids up the hill, and they start walking past um, crosses on that hill. It's like, all right, everybody's out of breath, right? Imagine if you've got to make it all the way to the top to survive. In a, in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, pretty tough. Did you have any friends die fighting fire? I did not. Had uh, a number that got hurt to the extent that they didn't want to continue, mm. but uh, nobody got, nobody died. Um, Good. Fighting fire, correct. Yeah. Or, okay. or in the smoke jumper program while yeah. I was involved. There yeah. have been some deaths yeah. in the program, uh, parachuting fatalities, but uh, 
or, or firefighting fatalities, but yeah. not while I was doing it. I jumped uh, seven seasons from 1977 through 83, hmm. and uh, I was stationed in Redmond, Oregon. Uh, one of the nice things about the job that I enjoyed as a single young individual, um, we got to travel around. I jumped in in uh, smoke jumper bases in Redding, California, uh, Cave Junction, Oregon, Redmond, of course. LeGrand had a smoke jumper base in uh, the late 70s. McCall, Idaho, North Cascades smoke jumper base in Winthrop, Washington, and uh, Fairbanks, Alaska. Um, I also jumped a couple of fires out of uh, Missoula, Montana, and I went down to Silver City, New Mexico, and jumped uh, some fires out of there. Uh, and they would satellite us out. Um, I spent some time in Vernal, Utah, as a kind of a home yeah. base, and jumped some fires out of there in the Uintas, high elevation, on a ninety-five or a hundred degree day, and you're jumping into an area that's over ten thousand feet. The air is a little thin, and uh, you come down pretty firm. As a matter of fact, my first fire jump in 1977 was out of Vernal, Utah, and I jumped uh, in the Uintas, and it was a fairly strong breeze that day. I remember this very clearly because I hit the ground so hard, I thought, man, I'm not sure I'm tough enough to do this job. It pounded me in backwards, knocked the wind out of me, and I was just thinking to myself, if this is how every fire jump is, I don't know that I got the gumption in me to keep it up because yeah. uh, it took a lot of wind out of my sails. I had a lot of adrenaline flowing. First fire jump, rookie. Oh, really? I'm, I'm ready to how exciting. take the world on. Yeah. And uh, man, I, <laughs> I put my hands on my knees and said, wow, yeah. that was something. But uh, <laughs> that was, uh, that was you know, one of a long line of good experiences that, uh, you know, make up your war stories. My first uh, fire repel, I was so cautious, you know. I was just feeding the rope <laughs> into the genie like, it, you know, six inches at a time and and I'm a big guy, and helicopters don't like that, so I'm jerking this damn helicopter around, taking forever to get to the ground, and, uh, you know, got the fire kicked in, in a couple of days and hiked out, and uh, got back and, you know, got a little talking to, like, hey, you know, once you're out the door, your job is to get to the ground quickly. You don't want to be attached to a helicopter any longer than you have to. So the first one was fine. The second one... I kind of overreact. <laughs> Too fast. <laughs> if you want to talk about like how that heat and uh, in air conditions af- affect a parachute, well, they affect a rope in very much the same way. So a rope is not the same diameter all the time, and it's not the same viscosity all the time. Um, so if it's a hot day and you're at a little bit higher elevation, that rope goes through that genie a lot faster, uh-huh. a lot faster, and. I had both hands on that rope and smoke rolling out of my gloves like there was a Brandon iron in the middle of them. And I was wrapping my leg around the rope and doing everything I could to Slow create friction. And 
Yeah, I uh, I hit the ground hard enough to register on a Richter scale and, <laughs> and got detached and <laughs> kind of learned. But yeah, it, I, the first time I ever rappelled out of a helicopter in training, and I want to get into your training too, uh, I swear you could read Vibram across the visor of my helmet from the spotter having to put his foot on my face to get me out the door. <laughs> it just didn't yeah. seem like like going, you know, upside down and backwards out of a helicopter was a great idea. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. You were talking about hell attack in the seventies. Hell attack meant that you were either going out to the closest place that you could land to a fire, or there was. I think about that time might've been a little bit later, hella jumping started to be a thing in California where they would get as close to the chaparral as possible and then fall out and just try and let the bushes absorb the landing. And then repelling was born after that. Repellers and smoke jumpers have had an adversarial um, sibling rivalry ever since, which I enjoy. Indeed they have. But uh, tell me about, about your training. I'm sure, sure it was intense. We went through uh, six weeks of training um, as a rookie or a a new jumper. And uh, they start out with uh, just a lot of calisthenics. Running was a regular activity. We trained for probably two weeks just doing exercises, push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, run, uh, and then some classroom time. Yeah. And then back out to do some more exercising. Then we uh, got our jump gear, uh, started with the mock-ups. There was a, a mock-up of a, the fuselage of an airplane that you would climb up on a tower, and this fuselage was up there. Then you would actually exit out the door of that fuselage like you would exit the door of an airplane. You were hooked to some cables that were sloped. You would actually be hooked up to it with cape wells and and risers, just like you're hooked up to a parachute. You would exit the the, uh, fuselage mock-up and kind of bounce down on these two cables, somewhat simulating the opening shock of the parachute. And then you slide down the sloped cables to uh, impact the ground, and that would somewhat simulate what it would be like to land with a parachute. Another part of our training, which was very important, was if you happen to get hung up when you're jumping into the forest, there is a chance that your parachute is going to hang up in a tree. And uh, so you're not going to be doing much firefighting if you're dangling from a treetop somewhere out in the woods. And uh, so part of the part of the routine was to, uh, well, part of our equipment, we had in our leg pocket a letdown rope that was put in uh, um, daisy-chained to be prepared for running it through the D-rings in your jumpsuit and tying off to your parachute and then being able to detach your yourself from your parachute and slide and and basically rappel down that rope to the ground and then part of the job was going to be to come back and collect your gear when the firefighting was done so we had uh, a mock-up of 
what it's like when you're just dangling, uh, simulating being hung up in a tree, and you would have to go through the procedure, and we had to go through the procedure hundreds of times to make sure, to, to prove to our trainers that we knew what we needed to do to get ourselves out of the predicament of being dangled from a tree uh, when you're out in the woods. And when you're out there on a fire, or at least headed to the fire, you're on your own. I mean, we no de- one's coming. We depended heavily on each other, yeah. and we would jump a minimum of two people right. per fire, but uh, no one is there to help you get yourself out of the predicament of being hung up in a tree. And uh, we had a uh, 150-foot letdown rope, and most of the western United States, 150 foot of rope was enough to get you to the ground. But occasionally, we would have fires over on the west side, which I'm referring to as the west side of the Cascades. And there are big fir trees and... uh, 150 foot will get you halfway down. (laughs) That's that's exactly right. And so we would go to a 250 foot letdown rope. And uh, there were some some guys, it, it became apparent to me because it's a tremendous amount of work to climb back up a tree and get a parachute untangled. Yeah. You got 32 shroud lines and, uh, the shroud lines and the skirt of the, the canopy of the parachute are badly tangled in a lot of branches and you are way up in the air. Right. And uh, so it's a tremendous amount of work to get your parachute back out of the tree. So it became very apparent to me that I need to learn how to drive the parachute so that I can get to the ground. It's going to save my save me a lot of work. Uh, it's going to save me a lot of risk as well because probably one of the most frequent hazards would be a smoke jumper running into a tree and having the tree deflate the canopy of the parachute. And if it's not hung up adequately to hold you up, you're going to come down. And it takes somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 feet to actually fully inflate the canopy of a parachute. And uh, 300 feet seems like a, a very long ways, and it is a long ways if you're falling, but 50 feet's a long way if you're falling. And uh, so, once again, if you're going to get hung up in the trees, you needed to cap the tree with your parachute. But better yet, let's drive this parachute to the ground. And, yeah. uh, you know, and then when you get to the, I mean, as you're surveying the landing, um, once again, there's logs and rocks and stumps and tree snags and and uh, steep slopes and less steep slopes. And occasionally you'll run into a nice meadow uh, that would be an ideal opportunity for a, a landing spot. But our mission was to get to the fire as quickly as possible because the sooner you get there, the smaller it is. And the smaller it is, the easier it is to put out. Yeah, and safer. So, yeah. So we did not look for a nice meadow to land in rarely but occasionally that happened yeah but uh more often than not you're jumping into the trees and you 
pick an area where the trees are less dense rather than the thickest of the trees. And in all honesty, it, as you get closer to descending into the canopy of treetops, you learn to recognize smaller trees are, you know, I mean, you can see the difference between a smaller tree and a, and a big tree. And uh, so the perspective coming down from the top, you know, bird's eye view, glorious experience floating down under a canopy and, you know, leaving the, the confines of an airplane. Oftentimes we would be jumping somewhere in the vicinity of a thunderstorm. It'd be hot, might be bouncing around inside the cabin of the plane. Uh, it was a relief to get away from the, or get out of the airplane. He went from the noise of a uh, of an airplane that doesn't have a door on it, and which is pretty significant. And you got hundred mile an hour wind beating on the doorway uh, to peace, quiet, calm. I mean, the airplane as it's going away from you, you obviously can hear that. But uh, you went from quite a lot of chaos to quite a lot of peace and quiet and but knowing that uh, sometime in the next two minutes maybe three you know all hell's gonna break loose and we're gonna be hitting the ground got to hit the ground running get our our firefighting tools and uh, we got we got work to do uh, you got a good adrenaline rush going and uh, it's a wonderful thing yeah it really is it really is um, that that feeling of no longer being connected to that aircraft and being on your own is pretty special. And you're talking about um, your chute getting hung up in trees. The same thing happens with rappel ropes all the time. So we rappelled on a 250-foot rope, and there was times in Northern California that I needed every inch of it. Um, there was actually one time uh, that... Uh, I needed a couple extra inches. I got all the way down <laughs> to the bottom and I was and just, <laughs> I was like two feet from the ground, 18 inches from the ground and I wasn't touching and I'm looking up at this helicopter and I'm doing this, and like trying to get them down, but they don't want to get any closer to those trees. And um, yeah, I ended up having to hoist myself off of it and, and unclip. And that's a, that's a tough move to try and pick your whole body weight up on a rope that's got some stretch to it. Yeah, but uh, gosh, it it was such a fun job when you were actually fighting fire. When you're stuck on a base or a hell of a base, you know, you're just sharpening tools that are already sharp and cleaning things that are already clean, and there's just nothing worse. It's like, I don't know, peacetime Marine Corps, you know, you just, that's not what it's for. You're there to fight fire, and uh, but when you actually get to fight the fire and, and get out in these wilderness areas and go to places that... Maybe nobody's ever been before. Nobody's ever had a reason to be there. And uh, you get to be, you know, all alone, just working and digging so hard for days and putting out a wildfire without water. It's a tremendous thing. And then for us, the, the pack outs are some of my greatest memories of, of difficulty in my life. You know, I carried 152 pounds out of the Wanaha uh, for 10 hours one time. And it was, you know, physically the hardest thing that I've ever done. Yeah. So transitioning from, you know, fight and fire like that 
to go into officer candidate school in the Marine Corps, in a lot of ways, it was pretty easy. It was physically easy. The hours were less, you know, it wasn't nearly as intense or wasn't the constant fear that I was going to get killed by something that I wasn't paying attention to. And, you know, I, I had a, a leg up on, on my competition there just because it was such a tough job. And then the other thing that was incredible and very important for me is that I came out of college without any debt. You know, I was able to work those months, those summer months really intensely, but I think my junior year I came came back to, to fire camp from college and I had half a tank of gas and three bags of groceries and eighteen dollars, <laughs> you know. So I had fought the perfect amount of fire the year before to get me through through college to the next summer and make, had make eighteen dollars worth of groceries and half a tank of <laughs> yeah, gas. Good to go. It's perfect. Yeah. 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 Yep. Um, and the bonds that you form with the guys that you're fighting fire with uh, is irreplaceable. It truly is. You're uh, uh, members of an elite fraternity of individuals that uh, you've shared experiences that are um, truly one of a kind. I mean, difficult to replicate and the closeness that you have with the individuals that you share that with is, uh, it's a wonderful thing. Um, lifelong friends. Uh, one of the sayings around the smoke jumper base, uh, as we were going along, because there's, there's a constant turnover, but, uh, it's, you know, a young man's game for sure. When are you going to get a real job? Yeah. And, uh, (laughs) My comment was, uh, you know what? I'm enjoying doing what I'm doing right here, right now. I'm not, I'm not worried about something that is often my yeah. future. Yeah. And uh, we, we had a really good, uh, you know, I, I've got lifelong friends. And uh, we worked extremely hard, but we played hard as well. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, that there's uh, a lot of shenanigans. There, there was a lot of shenanigans <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's what, that's what helps to make it what it is. I mean, there's, there's a lot of drudgery. You're, you're chinking in the black trying to mop up a fire and it is absolutely, you know, you're, you're dirty, grimy, probably been doing it for two or three days. You're pretty well worn out from, uh, you know, a limited amount of sleep and, uh, but you, you got to get the job done and stopping it on initial attack is part of the job, but getting the fire out is an equally important part of the job. And, uh, you know, you gotta, you depend on each other to keep each other going. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Uh, and shenanigans are, are what makes that what makes it happen, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff being flung around and, and, uh, you know, I, I have very fond memories of some of the worst drudgery jobs, but the stuff that was going on around just made it doable. Yeah. It was great. Uh, similarly to your packing out, probably the hardest physical part of the job for, the smoke jumper crew as well 
the heaviest pack that I ever had was 148 pounds. Yeah. And I was a 175-pound guy. And uh, when you got something close to 80% of your body weight on your back, um, that's, a, that's a tough chore to hike cross-country. Not on a trail. In the woods. Yeah. Um, Over deadfall and different creeks and brush. Yeah. Rattlesnakes and bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. There's always rattlesnakes on fires. I don't know <laughs> what the deal is with that. Yes, there are. Um, yeah, no, it's it's tough. And the, the deal with aerial delivered firefighters is, you know, one, they can get there pretty quick. Um, jumpers, you know, you guys can get in a plane and be in the air for, you know, five hours. So you can go a long ways, too. Yep. So, you know, you can get jumpers out of Utah and send them to a fire in Oregon, maybe. Um, whereas a helicopter is a lot slower and after two hours, all your fuel is gone. You need to get on the ground. So your, your range isn't nearly as far. Now a repeller can punch down into a, you know, a hole the size of a dinner plate, um, and be pretty precise with that. Whereas, um, you know, you can't really ask that of, of jumpers without there being, you know, a bunch of, bunch of mix ups and just extra time spent getting to the fire. So there's, there's give and take there. Jumpers don't hike off fires very often anymore. Um, they hike to the closest place that a helicopter can get to. Yeah. And uh, repellers, the last I heard, are still hiking out. Um, and I always thought that was interesting. Our, our helicopter would, would get diverted all the time to go pick up jumpers, but we could never call to get a ride out. That was <laughs> not, not going to happen. And jumpers get way better snacks, too. Your guys' food kits um, are a lot better than the Repel food kits. Well, we, we actually put our food kits together, you yeah. know. And uh, if you're going to put something together, you ought to put it in there the way you want it. That, that must be nice. <laughs> that must be nice. You know, those bases you mentioned that you jumped out of, those are still the most highly respected bases that are out there today. Um, Redmond, McCall, Missoula, uh, North Cascades, those are... Very, very well-respected smoke jumper bases. It says a lot about about which base you work at. Like, that's a big part of your identity as an aerial-delivered firefighter. And same thing within the rappel community. If you say that, you know, you're repelled out a Gallatin or something like that, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, you impoverished thing. Like, what's wrong with you? Did you not? Why would you go there? Yeah. Did you fall out after second grade or something? I don't know. But, uh, but no, it... You definitely made your rounds and and saw some of the the great bases out there and and you know even though you were thirty years into smoke jumping, that was still very much during the pioneer phase of it, in my opinion. Do you remember some fires that got away from you? Absolutely, I'd uh, love to hear a couple of those stories. We, uh, well, probably the one that uh, was the worst. There were. Four of us that jumped a fire. Um, we were up in the uh, Yukon Flats up in Alaska, and uh, four of us were all that was left at the base. And we had, uh, I mean, there were a lot of lightning fires all around. And uh, the four of us jumped a fire that was about 100 acres in largely tundra on and you know a very smattering of sp small spruce trees we jumped it uh late late in the evening and uh 
it really didn't matter what time of day or night it was. There was no night up there. We were up there in uh, July, and uh, it never got dark. Uh, you're far enough north that uh, the sun either doesn't get to the horizon or just settles in right at the horizon and then starts its ascent into the sky again. We had two two-man crews going around this fire, and we were beating out the flame front, and uh, it was seemed as though uh, we were making good progress. And we got within maybe uh, 200 yards of each other. We were talking to each other on the radio. So, you know, we just figured that we would close it off and... Uh, Anchor, flank, and pincher. <laughs> and be golden. And uh, the wind came up, and it took off. And it reignited some of the fire that we'd beat out behind us. And so we had to get into the black to, because we were basically surrounded by fire. Um, you know, up there, the flame height was anywhere from three to six feet. So you could actually make your way through sure. that flame and not feel like you were going to die. Um, but we we made our way into the black, and the next day, like I don't know, eight hours, the fire was a hundred thousand acres, yeah. and uh, the and it ultimately made its way to a million acres. Yeah, and uh, I thought, man, we were within a couple of hundred yards of having this thing whipped and no go. Yeah. Then down here in the lower forty-eight, we uh, had. Uh, couple of fires in central Oregon that uh, one of them was on Black Butte, which was a local landmark not far from Sisters, Oregon, which is not far from Redmond, which is where the smoke jumper base was. Uh, we saw the lightning hit Black Butte, saw the fire that night. Um, they said, okay, well, we're going to have you guys jump at daybreak because we want to get a good experienced crew up there on the slopes of Black Butte. Which is a good time to catch a fire. First thing in the morning, there's yep. a little bit of dew, it's cold. Calm, typically. Typically. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we we jumped this fire, and uh, there'd been a, a logging cut when there was quite a bit of slash left on the ground. And our mission was to stop it before it got to that, that cut. And uh, it, it was, once again, going to be 100, 105 degrees. Mm. And uh, thunderstorms expected. Got to get after it. And uh, if you are unable to accomplish your mission by noon, it's likely that it's not going to get accomplished. And uh, we, boy, when, when the breeze came up, that fire stood up and said, you know, I mean, it jumped our line. And uh, we just had to back off. It burnt, uh, I don't know how many acres that fire burned, but uh, it was pretty demoralizing to think about what it was that we had accomplished and uh, to see and have all of that just go by the wayside when, uh, when Mother Nature said, no, I've got other plans. We're going to kick the wind up, temperature up, Humidity down. See ya. Yeah. Yeah. There's a moment where when you think 
we might get it. We might get it caught. And then there's a moment that there's no maybe about it. It's like, we lost it, boys. <laughs> yeah, stand back. Yep. Um, I was on a fire in northern Nevada that we were able to corral towards a road, towards a two-track. And, uh, and it, was, it was hot, I think probably the second week of July, if I rem- remember right. So there's, a, there's sort of a progression in your firefighting season. You know, we'd end up in the southwest in June right after training. And, uh, you know, you'd fight fire down there a little bit. Maybe there'd be some early lightning in the northwest, and you'd, you'd sort of harden up your feet and your body again. Your hands would get hard, get back into the swing of everything. And then you'd be back up in the in the Northwest by July, Fourth of July or so, and you know every fire that you got on, you, you'd catch it, put it out, watch it the next day. It's out, hike out, you're good, and you build up all your confidence. And then August rolls around, dirty August. Yeah, and uh, fuel you know, moisture's gone. Yeah, and uh, everything's dry. It hits a hundred degrees. You get afternoon winds everywhere you go. And there's that, that, that fire, that first of first week of August fire that you're like, I think we can get it. I think we can get it. And everybody's throwing their elbows into everything that they can and just digging for their life. And then you hit that moment. It's like, well, boys stand back and watch her go. (laughs) Yep. Yep. We got to regroup and uh, we'll figure out something different. Yeah. Just start running the air show, calling in retardant. Yeah. Then you turn it over to the hot shots and wish those losers the best of luck. <laughs> and, and and just seeing the looks on their faces <laughs> as we're out of there. Yeah. Yeah. We're yeah, I'm glad all 60 of you guys can live here for the next month. Sorry about that. <laughs> we did our best, but it wasn't quite good enough. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh. Uh. So, you know, the breakdown for the, for the type one firefighters is repeller, smoke jumpers, and hot shots. And, you know, we're kind of building this picture of what, what it looks like. Most firefighters in the forest I'm service. I'm going to have are, to say that it's smoke jumpers, repellers, and hot shots. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whatever makes you feel comfortable. I, I know you get insecure around repellers. Um, so most firefighters are type two firefighters, and they work on engine crews or hand crews. Um, Doing the type of stuff that, that you and I both started with. And everybody starts out as a type two firefighter. And then some people that that want to get to that level and are able to um, become a type one firefighter. Hot shots work in 20-man crews. And um, they tend to work on the ground, digging line and cutting line with chainsaws. And they end up on bigger fires that require them. And they're, they're a tremendous unit. They dig beautiful fire line which is basically like building a trail around a fire for folks that don't know that's what we're talking about in digging line you're using a a shovel or a pulaski or or some other digging tool um, to to scrape away everything down to mineral soil usually you know three feet wide all the way around the fire and when a 20-man crew starts digging the first guy reaches down and takes a swipe with his tool and then takes a step and does it again and by the time you get to the 20th person, it should be just perfect, like ready to sweep with a broom. And they are just tremendous, tremendous cutters, um, really good tree fellers. You know, they're, they're great. I want nothing to do 
with, with being a hot shot. That was never, never going to be my thing. That's not the type of unit that I do well in. And then you've got, you know, the, the smoke jumpers that are, you know, getting hung up in trees and landing on the far side of the Canyon and just making a general mess of things. (laughs) And you've got the barrel chested sky gods that, you know, descend out of a helicopter and get some real work done. Can't reach the ground. (laughs) Sometimes. Sometimes. Uh, it's like the kid, the Christmas story, but instead of my arms, it's like, I can't get my feet down. (laughs) Yep. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. But that fire in Northern Nevada, um, we're getting it pretty close to that road. And there, there was some, gosh, I can't even remember the term, but there was vertical winds that day. So we were seeing little dust devils kick around and I thought I saw a dust devil go into the fire and then it becomes a fire world. So think of a, a baby tornado um, that's nothing but flames. And those flames can carry a ways. I thought that's what I was looking at. It was just a bright spot that was inconsistent. And uh, that turned out to be a, a jackrabbit. And that jackrabbit was on fire and made it across the road. And that fire ended up being over a million acres. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. But stuff like that happens. It does happen. And uh, it it's demoralizing and uh obviously expensive for the government and uh it's not it's not through lack of trying it's right yeah you know the the next day or maybe two days later there was a smoke jumper that had um he had an experimental jumpsuit and um he was a blm jumper so he had a he had a ram shoot Mm -hmm. and he came into a juniper tree um too fast and that thing hit him about the hip and came out around his kidneys in the back and the jumpers had to had to cut him off of that juniper and leave that limb in him and we flew over there and got him and uh, we didn't have enough fuel to make it to las vegas i think we made it to black canyon city or something like that and it was so hot in las vegas that their their medevac helicopter couldn't get off the ground so we ended up having to, I think, wait there because we were out of fuel. We had to wait there for an ambulance to come on the ground and get him. He lived, um, didn't do well, but he, he did live. Yep. Well, there are some pretty unforgiving things in the firefighting world. It's dangerous. Uh, it is. It's a, it's a hazardous occupation. Uh, it's a young man's game. Yeah. And it, woman. And yes, indeed. There's some badass female firefighters out there. Wonderful. No yeah. question about it. Yeah. Um, you know, and it really stands to reason that uh, being in good shape is going to allow you to put up with a lot of bumps and bruises. And uh, you have to be in good shape to go through the grind of digging fire line. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're talking the 20 man crew, they do a tremendous job. Uh, it starts with the chainsaw and the swamper, uh, getting all of the big heavy stuff out of the way. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, a lot, some of the things that, uh, I certainly enjoyed was jumping on a two man or, yeah. uh, they always put a minimum of two folks on a fire and as lightning storms go through, they'll hit a tree snag whatever just start maybe just that tree on fire and if it's allowed to go uh it could turn into that million acre inferno but 
the smoke jumpers would uh, be out flying around in the vicinity of those thunderstorms, bouncing around in the sky. And uh, I'm sure the repellers did the same thing, you yeah. know, get them while they're small. Uh, we'd have uh, two guys on a fire and, uh, you know, you could basically separate the fuel with your boot It'd be burning in pine needles in an area the size of this room around the tree that got struck by lightning. And, uh, you know, basically you'd have it contained within 15 minutes of sure. the time you hit the ground. However, if, if you didn't get there at that time, uh, you know, it'd be five acres, 10 acres, 50 acres, 100 acres, uh, you know, and it's going to take all the smoke jumpers and the hotshot crews and everybody else, the retardant planes as well, to uh, try to slow things down. So, uh, you know, it's a kind of a niche portion of the firefighting world, but hardcore initial attack as soon as possible is uh, a key to keeping fire small and, uh, you know, minimizing resource damage and really... Uh, just making it easier on the firefighting crew. Sure. And, you know, folks don't realize how big an acre is, a lot of them. So let's talk this through. You you and your buddy, you know, descend out of the sky one way or another to to fight this fire, and it's a one-acre fire. doesn't sound like too big of a deal, one-acre fire. So one acre is the size of a football field with both end zones. Mm-hmm. So out there in the forest, how long is it going to take you and your buddy with it? axe and a freaking hoe to dig a trail all the way around a football field with both end zones and are you going to be able to do it before that football field decides to become two football fields it's it's not an easy thing i was on it like gosh i think it was like a 17 acre fire one time in the grand ronde that had started at the river and burned narrow all the way up to the rim Mm -hmm. thousands of vertical feet Mm -hmm. and it was it was a mid-June fire so everybody's feet were soft everybody's hands were soft and we had two plane loads of jumpers and I think four four six person loads of repellers and it was all aerial delivered firefighters and it was a party for the first two days and then it was no longer fun (laughs) um that thing gosh we we just earned it and there are snakes and steep and you know people just we're, our bodies weren't ready for that heart of a fire. Yeah. And, uh, well, you got Manzanita and Madrone and just that West side. Yeah. Well, this, this is on the grand Ron. So this is just oh, right outside my, my back oh, door. Grand. Okay. And, uh, so it, it was pine and rims, um, okay. Pine and rims and grass and a few fir trees. But the really brutal thing was that it was right at the bottom of a, of a rapid and all day long while you're up there on that fire, with your hands bleeding and your feet bleeding and you'd be hearing rafters come down drinking beer, <laughs> just having the time of their life slipping through that rapid. It's like, take me with you. <laughs> but, uh, one of the, one of the managers, the assistant manager of the, the Frasier repel crew, um, she flew back over the fire to like, just do a check or whatever, but she dropped us a package that had a log of Copenhagen in it. Fresh socks and underwear for all the repellers, and um, and a a dozen cookies because it was my birthday, and uh, man, that was awesome. Sweet, yeah, that was pure gold. Yep, yep. 
when we were up in Alaska, we would get uh, fresh food drop every three days. And uh, part of the game up there was uh, a suitcase of beer was part of the fresh food drop. <laughs> nice. And uh, I'm surprised you guys didn't get like a masseuse to come out, <laughs> you know, rub your feet while you rested. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> we or did you do that for each other? I know jumpers are pretty personal. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that uh, <laughs> that that's how it was. We, the masseuse couldn't the masseuse couldn't get there because she didn't have the parachute training. In the, oh, okay, <laughs> I got you. <laughs> the, and the fresh food drops always came uh, special delivery, parachuted in. Um, so you know, it was it was important to uh, feed your body. Yeah. Uh, because you know, when you run out of gas, if your if your tank is empty. You're not of any assistance to your cohorts in, in uh, getting the job done. So and, that, that fire I was telling you about on the Wanaha that I packed all the weight out with, mm-hmm. there were some jumpers that had jumped a fire on the other side. And we knew that they weren't hiking out of there, right? <laughs> they are going to get a ride. So I thought, well, we're going to get a ride too. So we ordered some extra stuff. Got, uh-huh. some, got a couple of blivets. Got some extra hose, you know, got to put out this fire with some water. Uh-huh. It's incredible. And then uh, when, the, when the helicopter was supposed to come to get us, to pick us up, uh, there was some more lightning fires that popped up, and they got diverted. Well, the jumpers still had food, and we were out. Uh-huh. So we didn't have an option to stay. We just had to pack up and go out, but we had to do it on empty stomachs. Yeah. And that's one of the things that made it really hard. It was hard on everybody. Um, but I, I, I distinctively remember thinking, oh, this is going to be the glorious fire. We're going to piggyback off these jumpers and <laughs> get a ride out of here. And it just didn't work. Yeah. Well, that heavy pack fire that I was on, it was a two-manner. And uh, it was a, a pretty good-sized snag mm. that was hit by lightning. So we needed a chainsaw. Yeah. Got to cut, the, saw, cut right. the snag down. Well, the first chainsaw came in on the cargo pass. The parachute cargo chute streamered in so the chainsaw just smeared on the hillside right and uh so we had to have a second chainsaw um and the second chainsaw got hung up in a tree and we had so we had to get a set of climbers so that we could get up and get our tools wow. so we had so there were two guys and we had way too much of everything including the 85 pounds a piece worth of gear sure. our parachute reserve jumpsuit yeah all of the gear that sleeping we, bag you know everything you need yeah so uh i mean we just had a ton of gear literally <laughs> that uh all had to come out part of the program you know they uh keep track of what you're issued when mm-hmm. you go to the fire and you got to bring it back yeah and uh so there's no no leaving uh you know that that chainsaw that came in at 150 miles an hour or whatever speed it hit right. the ground at is not going to be too operational yeah but it's not something that you could just leave there yeah. and say well it wasn't going to work right. it's never going to work yeah we got issued it we needed to uh get it back get our stuff checked off and uh, so part of the game that uh, 
we play, you know, you got to take everything back out that you started with and uh, basically leave, uh, leave the forest as cleaner, cleaner than when you started. And I took a lot of pride in that, and a lot of firefighters do. Um, when I left a fire, it looked beautiful. Yep. The first night, after we got it caught, after we got it lined, I would take every stick inside that fire and create bonfires, and I'd burn up everything that was in the fire. By the time we left, every tree was limbed. We dug down to dirt on every single inch of it. We'd had our hands, our bare hands, and every bit of it, making sure there wasn't a root burning anywhere. Um, it was swept clean. It, it looked like a park, just a garden ready, ready for whatever was next. Yep. One of the more heartbreaking things that happened to me later on in my career is a lot of those fires that I'd worked so hard at to not only catch, but, but leave in such good condition, they started getting burned up by other fires. And, uh, you know, it's a funny thing, but that was, that was really hard on me. I didn't, I didn't like that. It felt like nothing that I was doing was was worthwhile. Mm -hmm. um, and at that age, you know, in my early 20s, I was still pretty idealistic. And that was probably the beginning of me losing that idealism. Yeah. 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 The, the politics of, uh, you know, yeah. government, big business, it takes its toll as you're... Uh, thinking that you're doing good, which you are, but uh, there's a lot of uh, things that kind of get in the way of that feel-good feeling. Yeah. What, uh, what, advice, what advice would you offer to a young firefighter today um, who maybe isn't quite good enough to be a repeller but got, um, got accepted <laughs> onto a smoke jumping crew? Uh, I can't imagine that ever happening. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, good for the guy because, or, or female as, as the case may be, because that individual is actually hitting the top rung on the ladder. <laughs> um, you know, you, you should be in pretty peak physical condition before you show up for day one on the job. And, uh, you know, that, that means physically strong, aerobically strong, running, ha having your legs strong for, you know, running. I, I used to run the stadium steps a lot at uh, Oregon State University in the springtime, just in anticipation of fire season because uh, I knew, even though I wasn't going to be a, a rookie, and I, I, I just knew that there's going to be a lot of physical pounding that occurs and having your body strong, your legs, muscles, and heart, lungs, um, is vitally important. Uh, getting a start somewhere, whether it might be a hotshot crew, hell attack crew, I'm not even sure all the terminology, yeah. uh, but getting some wildland fire experience is a critical aspect on your resume because uh, you got to have some experience. They expect you to know how to fight a fire when you show up on the job and they're going to train you how to get to the fire. Um, not that you don't have some fire training and fire awareness, 
but uh, they expect you to have a pretty good knowledge of fire behavior, what it takes, to, what what makes a fire burn. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, having yourself in in physical peak physical condition is is a critical aspect. Yeah. Greg, has he left any stories out that we need to get him? Oh, there's a bunch. I don't know if there's time, but you ever pack a fishing rod when you jump? <laughs> yes, as a matter Does of fact. Does not surprise me in the least. <laughs> as a matter of fact, uh, <laughs> I had a little aluminum tube that was uh, 12 inches long, had uh, seven pieces of uh, a fishing rod, and a light, light, lightweight reel caught, well, I... I Used it. <laughs> would you? How would you classify that rod as ultra ultra light? Ultra ultra light. And how does that work when you hook into a Arctic char? <laughs> well, <laughs> Arctic char are a lively game fish, <laughs> and uh, um, you know, typically when you're fishing on the banks of a glacial fed stream it's nice to stay out of the water Mm -hmm. (laughs) because the water is very cold but i i hooked on to i believe around a four pound arctic char i had four pound test and this fish was as hard as a rock and had way more energy than i could believe but we were on the west end of the Brooks Range, north of the Arctic Circle, mm. in uh, in Alaska, and uh, we were on a tributary of the Kobuk River, and uh, this fish had <laughs> so much life. I, I had to chase it, and I was I was pretty excited because having fresh anything when you're out there is just a a wonderful thing compared to eating canned uh, or freeze-dried food. Um, We would get fresh food drops after the third day, but even so, the fresh food didn't compare to having live, you know, meat. And uh, so, so I chased that fish for 20 minutes, until it wore out and uh, it went up and down that river. I was wet above my waist, but uh, I got it. And uh, it, was, it was tremendous. And we also caught some grayling. I had uh, my woodsman, woodsman's pal. Um, I was on this one fire where I, I hiked over to the river uh, that was maybe a half a mile away. And... Uh, it was a little tiny crick, and it couldn't have been more than 18 inches wide, but it was deep into the tundra, so the water was maybe two feet deep in an 18-inch wide crick, and there was a pike that was probably 30 inches long in that in that little crick, uh, and 30 inches is a big fish. Yeah. Um, I did not have my fishing rod, and uh, all I had was my woodsman's pal, which is a machete. Mm-hmm. And uh, Great tool for pike. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So I went after the pike with my machete, and the first, the first swing at it was I didn't gauge the width of the stream accurately, so I just hit the bank on the far side, <laughs> the far side of my uh, uh, of of the creek. And uh, classic smoke jumper, always overreaching. <laughs> uh, well, I was determined. I I had blocked the downstream escape. Yeah, you didn't want to give him an escape route. I did not want yeah. to give him an escape route. So he did not have the ability to get out of the space that I was going to hunt him in with my woodsman's pal. And once again, uh, you know, hacking a 30-inch long fish with a machete is uh, probably an interesting sight. But uh, I came away with the pike. Nice. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, all's well that ends well. There were a couple other experiences that uh, were interesting. Um, I hiked over to do a little fishing on a river that had quite a bit of brush. And it was maybe five or six feet the, the height of the brush and probably 30 to 50 feet away from the water's edge. Well, I waded through the brush and got out onto a gravel bar, and I was standing on the gravel bar, and I was, I was catching grayling, and uh, life was great. On the other side of the river, and the river's probably maybe 40 feet across to the other side of the river, enough water that, and it was moving, didn't really think that I wanted to go swimming, um, but, you know, a decent-sized river, lots of fish, and I'm catching fish flipping them on the bank. They're flopping around on the gravel bar. And uh, I see the brush moving on the other side of the river. And uh, I didn't think too much of it. Caught another grayling. And then I look back over there, and here's a grizzly bear that was standing on its hind legs. And I, I can't say for sure, because I wasn't over on the other side of the river, but I would guess that the height of the brush was about the same on the other side as it was what I came through, which was, you know, five feet, almost shoulder height brush as you're going through there. Well, this grizzly bear stood up on its hind legs, and I could see all the way down to its crotch. And uh, I thought, oh, my God, that bear's got to be 11 feet tall. Yeah. And uh, I, I said... Yo, bear, you can have all of my fish. I mean, I got, I got my fishing rod, and uh, I backpedaled away from because I didn't think I, I wanted to see if it was going to come after me. Yeah, and uh, I backpedaled and into the brush I went, and uh, I could not go backwards through that brush because it was too thick. You know, and I was I was stumbling and staggering, and uh, I got to the far side of the brush and looked back. And the bear had come to the edge of the river on the other side of the river, but that was as far as the bear came, wow. but at least that I saw. And then I hightailed it back across the tundra. Um, had several encounters with, uh, with bears, but that was the one that scared me the most because I didn't have any firepower to protect myself, and I'm not sure how much it would have taken with that big of a bear because that was a big critter. That's awesome. And folks, I know some of this sounds about halfway barbaric, but when I was fighting fire, the the Russian smoke jumpers were still jumping without 
handles for their tools and without food. So they're jumping with tool heads and with a, with a rifle. And their expectation was that they were going to make their handles once they got to the ground and that they were going to find their own food while they were out there. And they might, you know, be on a fire for a month or two. Uh, if anybody knows a, a Russian smoke jumper and, um, who can speak English, I would love to love to uh, get them on the show and, and hear some more of these stories because as much as we joke, firefighters have, um, have, have really worked hard to preserve the forests of the world. And, uh, and we might have done too good of a job over the last hundred years, and there are definitely a lot of places where there's, uh, where there's been an unhealthy lack of fire, but, uh, but that's, that's not on us. That that's on the, the managers of the forest and, you know, uh, firefighters have, have died and gotten hurt and risked their lives for a very long time, um, to keep these forests what they are. And, and not just here, you know, the Australian firefighters are wonderful. Um, you know, all over the world, wherever there's trees, there's fire and there's people that are, that are standing between the two. I appreciate your stories very much. Thank you for taking the time to, to go on the show today. I brought some uh, some some whitetail and some axis deer from Texas, and we're gonna go make some dinner here real quick. That sounds all right. Awesome. We'll have a have a cheers to the current firefighting force. Uh, Absolutely. And uh, wish them good luck and good health. Yep. Keep one foot in the black. That's right. Yep. <laughs> all righty. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch podcast. I'll catch you next week.